Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscal your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Uh, the intro segment, you know, I guess technically the whole podcast is a monologue, so I can't call it an intro monologue, but the segment usually follows a pretty well-defined pattern. I do that intro, I tell you about some podcast notes, and then I tell you things like join the conversation online, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're going we're gonna to mix that up a little bit because I want to start with a, a very quick talk uh, on mental health. Because as all of you are probably aware, mental illness has been in the news this past week. Uh, both Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain took their own lives. And this became a huge shock to everybody because both of these are wildly successful people. And there seems to be this, this perception that's totally bonkers, but people still believe it, that if you're ludicrously wealthy and well-liked and well-loved, that you don't deal with mental illness. You know, And it's a super common thing. I think I've mentioned in a prior episode... My uh, my sister is schizophrenic. A girlfriend from college had bipolar disorder. Uh, one of my classmates ended up spiraling into depression after we graduated um, and took his life just about a year ago at this point. Um, so it's a very common thing. And one of the things that, that I thought of is that we cover really gloomy stuff on this podcast. And I know that. And that's really the, the reason why the podcast exists, not to cover gloomy stuff, but to cover stuff that needs to be compiled that just all happens to be gloomy. So if any of you have thoughts on ways where I can brighten up the podcast, if you will, uh, you know, I like to think that the opening commentary and my wildly excessive use of profanity and the Law 140 stuff at the end kind of helps brighten it up a little bit. But if you have other suggestions, I'm open to them because I don't want this podcast to be a drain on your mental health. And also, I, I, I want to, it's not really a rant per se, but in response to all of this discussion about mental illness, a lot of people tweeted out the telephone number for the National Suicide Hotline. And I don't want to detract from that at all. That's a very important service. It helps save lives. But I would encourage you to go beyond just telling the people who are suffering to make a phone call. Because one of the things I found in working with, and in one case dating, people who uh, deal with depression is that they don't want to talk to folks a lot of the time as far as like going out and, and making the call. It's like a weird thing. Like the one person who I'm, I'm thinking of said that she wanted nothing more than to talk to people but at the same time didn't want to like initiate it. And it was actually offensive to her when other people were trying to initiate it. I don't understand it, but that's the nature of illness. It's not something I understand. You know, I don't need to understand it to know that it's there. Um, but you know, we have a lot of, a lot of push for the people that are suffering. We expect them to do more to better themselves. And sometimes they just can't do that. You know, when I have those podcasts where y'all heard me coughing and I was ill, I couldn't necessarily go better myself on my own. I had to actually have medication and, you know, I had other people help me out. It's not something I could just will myself into being better. Uh, so, you know, reach out to people, not just reach out to them, but actually develop full, meaningful relationships with them. Be nicer to folks around you. You know, all that other stuff that comes in addition to the telephone number. You know, like I said, it's not really a rant, but I just, I saw so many people tweeting the telephone number and I'm like, these are the same folks that nine to five, Monday through Friday, sometimes on nights and weekends also tweet out just the most vitriolic, hateful shit. And now we're expecting people to make a phone call when the hateful shit weighs them down. Uh, so anyhow, that's a, a minor aside as part of the intro. In addition to that, completely separate, uh, we have two sets of corrections that I want to read into the record, if you will, uh, after our last podcast. The first one comes from uh, at T Bridge, and he writes, this is about the Law 140. He says, quote, D.C. adopted comparative negligence last year. Was very happy that happened. So if you go back to our Law 140, I'd mentioned there were five states plus D.C. that used contributory negligence. Apparently, D.C. has changed that. So thank you, at T. Bridge, for that correction. And the other one comes from Erin Riley, who's out of Australia. Her ad, as you could imagine, is at Erin Riley AU. And she talks about the um, story we had 
about the DWI scandal where police had been fabricating DWI results down there. And she says in a string of tweets, quote, Hello, can I please offer a bit of context for the Victoria story? In Australia, we have roadside breath testing stations. Basically, police set up temporary stations and can pull anyone over without any reasonable suspicion of wrongdoing. So I think the story makes a bit more sense when you know that the police aren't required to get back in their car and find someone else to pull over. Rather, they're not pulling over cars to their roadside temporary station. If you think civil liberty violations are bad in the U.S., it's a whole different world here, basically because we don't have many. No freedom of association, no freedom of speech, limited protection against search and seizure. So thank you for that clarity. That's slightly terrifying to me, frankly, um, because, you know, in the back of my mind, not that I would ever actually move because I love where I have grown up. But as things continue to get progressively more fucked, I've been pondering moving somewhere and I have this running checklist in my mind of where I can't move for various reasons. So pretty much everywhere that doesn't have English as the predominant language is out because I puedo hablar un poco de español, but not enough for it to be passable in conversation. Uh, and I, I don't have the mental bandwidth to learn another language at this point, especially when I've got like a half dozen programming languages still going on in my brain. Can't move to Canada. Canada's too cold, you know. So I can't move to some of these other spots because I just couldn't afford it. So as I'm going through this list, you know, places like Australia, UK, South Africa, you know, former British colonies that still follow the same common law structure and everything else, I, I ponder maybe moving to one of those areas and hearing this about Australia, fuck that. Uh, no freedom of speech, no freedom of association. I would go batshit. I'd, I'd end up arrested within weeks of being there. So hard pass. But thank you to both of y'all for the corrections. Okay, so I want to get that out of the way. We had the mental illness discussion. We had the corrections discussion. Uh, we are going to have in this week's episode a Law 140 on Paul Manafort going to jail. Uh, we're going to talk about the Bail Reform Act and how that works with pretrial detention in federal cases. And the episode itself is actually a little bit shorter. And I don't know if that's because I missed stories or if folks just didn't send me stuff or what, but the outline is only 13 pages. I'm not sure how that will pan out in terms of time, but that's actually a relief that this is actually going to be a potentially shorter episode. So if you have not already, please make sure to join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to leave us a comment, you can do that on our website, fiscamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our patrons, you can do that on patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, in political news, don't have much that I'm willing to talk about because it's just so much happens in the span of a week. It's hard for me to keep up. Uh, key point, of course, is Paul Manafort has been indicted for witness tampering now. Uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from the story. It says, quote, the special counsel's accusation this week that Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman, tried to tamper with potential witnesses originated with two veteran journalists who turned on Mr. Manafort after working closely with him to prop up the former Russia-aligned president of Ukraine. Interviews and documents show. The two journalists who helped lead a project to which prosecutors say Mr. Manafort funneled more than $2 million from overseas accounts are the latest in a series of one-time Manafort business partners who have provided damaging evidence to Robert S. Mueller III, the special counsel investigating Russian meddling in the 2016 election. The cooperation with the government has increasingly isolated Mr. Manafort as he awaits trial on charges of violating financial, tax, and federal lobbying disclosure laws. I'm going to give you more in the Law 140 section itself, but what is striking to me about that is that this guy got dimed out by his own associates, which that's a, that's a bad sign. You know, I represent people accused of wrongdoing for a living, and when you have your colleagues snitching on you, that's a sign that you're going to be the fall guy at that point. Uh, so we'll talk more about that in the Law 140 segment. Also, the G7 summit was a total dumpster fire. Uh, the president doesn't know what he's doing or does know what he's doing. I don't really know. I can't tell if this guy is just a, a super genius and I'm missing it. But he seems like an imbecile to me. But after going to the summit, he showed up late. He left early. He looked like a fucking slob. They got nothing substantive accomplished. And, you know, after these summits, they put together these communiques, little statements where they're trying to say, you know, what they managed to accomplish. And they managed to put something together 
that everyone agreed to. But then when Trump got on the plane, he read a tweet from Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, and then Trump decided that he's just going to take back everything he agreed to because apparently Trudeau's tweet made him upset. So that's been the goings-on of the past few days as we're actually walking into uh, the studio today. Uh, Larry Kudlow, the chief economic advisor, was on Fox News Sunday ranting and raving about how bad Justin Trudeau is. It's so fucking ridiculous. You know, what kills me is that if you if you ask yourself this question, let's assume that Russia wanted to have their own asset as president, a Manchurian candidate of their very own, what would that person do differently than Donald Trump? I don't know. It's hard for me to think of something. So marinate on that. All right, in criminal justice news, in terms of court stuff, the big news story from the past week was the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, That's the, the, quote, gay wedding cake case that everyone keeps talking about. I'm not going to give you much detail on it in the podcast because I put together a Twitter thread that basically breaks down the majority opinion, the concurrences, the dissent, and everything else. So I'm going to give you a link to that in the show notes, but the gist of it is that the Supreme Court punted on most of the big issues that they wanted, uh, that you know bystanders wanted them to rule on. They didn't say whether or not uh, a cake shop could lawfully discriminate against gay folks. Uh, What they said was essentially that process matters. They claimed that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was hostile to religion and to this particular defendant, and therefore the entire proceeding was tainted. So they essentially reversed the lower court decision. The case is done. The Supreme Court reversed the lower court decision rather than vacating it and remanding it for further proceedings. So this particular case is finished. But by leaving some of the key points unaddressed, Uh, it can come up again if the same type of conduct happens to repeat itself. So I'll give you a Twitter thread with all of that discussion. Uh, In research news, the Washington Post has taken thousands upon thousands of homicide cases and basically plotted them all on Google Earth and put together a bunch of graphics on where particular city blocks, not just cities, but actual city blocks, uh, where you can kill someone and get away with it because police just don't make arrests. So from the story with, and I'm telling you, this is the graphics and the, the infographics are phenomenal. So you have a link in the show notes. I would encourage you to check it out. It's incredibly disturbing, but it's valuable data. And they, the granularity of it as a data nerd on my end, it's just, it's really cool. So from the story says, quote, the Washington Post has identified the places in dozens of American cities where murder is common, but arrests are rare. These pockets of impunity were identified by obtaining and analyzing up to a decade of homicide arrest data from 50 of the nation's largest cities. The analysis of 52,000 criminal homicides goes beyond what is known nationally about the unsolved cases, revealing block by block where police fail to catch killers. The overall homicide arrest rate in the 50 cities is 49%, but in these areas of impunity, police make arrests less than 33% of the time. Despite a nationwide drop in violence to historic lows, in 34 of the 50 cities, they have a lower homicide arrest rate now than they did a decade ago. Some cities, such as Baltimore and Chicago, solve so few homicides that vast areas stretching for miles experience hundreds of homicides with virtually no arrests. In other places, such as Atlanta, police manage to make arrests in a majority of homicides, even those that occur in the city's most violent areas. It's truly fascinating stuff. So check that out. Uh, Don't have anything substantive for the federal government. We've got several ICE stories that are going to put in their particular states, Uh, starting in the state-by-state stuff in Arizona. Out of Mesa, we have the first rule of Fisk in our very first story of the week. Uh, Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Uh, From the story there, it says, quote, surveillance video released Tuesday shows Mesa police officers becoming violent with a man at an apartment complex for seemingly no good reason. Shortly before midnight on May 23rd, a man is seen next to an elevator and is approached by several officers. After a short exchange of words, the officers are seen on video attacking the man, punching him repeatedly as he is on the floor. Now, I'm going to interject in the news story here because what is missing from that description is that police get off the elevator, and this is all from the apartment complex security video. This is not police video. This is security cam. They didn't know this was recording. They pat the guy down. 
They do a full-blown Terry stop. They determine he doesn't have any weapon as he's talking on the cell phone. They're jawboning back and forth. The guy walks towards the wall where his back is against the wall. Again, no weapons. And you just see the police start fucking wailing on him. They beat the shit out of him to the point where the guy is unconscious. Uh, The story continues, quote, The incident, which happened at an apartment complex near Main Street and Horn, has prompted Mesa Police Chief Ramon Batista to place three officers and one sergeant on administrative leave while internal investigators look into the matter. Subquote, It is disappointing because this isn't the way I see the people that I work with and the community that we serve. Uh, Batista said he may want to get his eyes checked. So the man's name is Robert Johnson. Police are claiming that he was, uh, quote, getting ready for a fight, which is so fucking ludicrous when he's unarmed and surrounded by four to six officers because there are more officers in the camera shot other than the ones that are beating him. So this is just insane. So I'll give you a link to that story in California, uh, in Delano. You might remember back in episode 59, Back about two months ago, we talked about a pair of folks that had been targeted by ICE in a case of mistaken identity. They tried to flee, and in the course of fleeing, crashed the car, both of them died, and ICE lied about what happened. They pretended like they had nothing to do with it at all. Well, that couple that died had six kids. Their uncle helped to take care of them after their death. Well, now the uncle's been deported as well. From the story, it says, quote, More than a month ago, a Delano couple died when they crashed their truck while fleeing from immigration agents. The man and woman who were in the country illegally had not been the intended target of immigration and customs enforcement agents. Officials later said that the agents were trying to arrest another man and that Santos Hilario Garcia, who died in the crash, matched the description of their target. On Wednesday, ICE arrested and deported the person they had been after, the dead man's brother, Celestino Garcia. Celestino Garcia was leaving his apartment complex in a car with his wife and a neighbor when he was arrested by ICE deportation officers. His wife and four children remain in the city. Now, the story, of course, goes on from there. I'll give you a link to it. But as you read through it, what is the heinous crime that this guy has been charged with to justify two people dying and now a total of 10 kids, his four kids, plus his six nieces and nephews not having a father figure around? Well, you keep reading and you find out his entire criminal record consists of three traffic charges. That's it. So when Donald Trump and his acolytes tell you that they're deporting the, quote, bad hombres, remember, they are lying to you. Uh, Out of the District of Columbia, we've talked about the J-20 prosecutions for several episodes now. Uh, Basically, the government just did mass charges against a shitload of people they thought were engaged in rioting back uh, during Trump's inauguration in January 2016. And we had an episode where the government basically admitted they didn't have evidence on a good chunk of people. Uh, Rioting charges were dismissed against pretty much everybody because of what they couldn't prove, and they've been prosecuting them in chunks at a time. Well, the latest batch has now come out, and it did not go well for the prosecution again. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, the Justice Department failed to convict any of the four defendants facing felony trials in connection with property destruction uh, during a subquote black block protest of President Donald Trump's inauguration with jurors either finding defendants not guilty or deadlocking on charges against the defendants. Two of the defendants could still face trial on felony charges. I'm going to do a sidebar. Those are the ones that had mistrials because the jury deadlocked. Uh, While one defendant could face a single misdemeanor charge, jurors speaking after the verdict said they also didn't understand why one of the defendants they had acquitted early into deliberations, Casey Weber, was in the group being prosecuted at all as the government never alleged that he took part in any destruction. Subquote, Casey's case was different, said juror number one. I think we felt very clear based on what was presented that with Casey there was no action at all. Uh, The jury acquitted another defendant, Seth Cadman, of all but a single misdemeanor charge of engaging in a riot. They acquitted defendant Anthony Felice of a single count of assaulting a police officer, but deadlocked on the remaining charges against him. And the jury deadlocked on all charges against Michael Basias. A judge declared a mistrial and dismissed the jury in that case. Prosecutors with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, a component of the Justice Department that uniquely prosecutes both local and federal charges in D.C., originally pressed felony charges against more than 200 defendants. But after a jury acquitted six defendants on all charges late last year, prosecutors decided to drop charges against 129 of those defendants. 
There are still defendants exposed to felony charges in connection with what the government alleged was a conspiracy to riot. So basically, they've been spending all this taxpayer money trying to prosecute all these people, engaging in Brady violations for part of it. I think that was the one we covered two weeks ago. Uh, and they have not convicted a single person. Uh, that's in D.C., out of Florida and Tallahassee. For more than a year now, the politician, I, I don't know what the exact uh, agency is. I should have put that in my notes. Oh, I do have it. It's the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Uh, they just didn't bother to do background checks for people applying for concealed handgun permits because an employee couldn't log in to the system to run the checks. Hand to God. That's what this story says. Uh, it says, quote, for more than a year, the state of Florida failed to review national background checks on tens of thousands of applications for concealed weapons permits, potentially allowing drug addicts or people with a mental illness to carry firearms in public. A previously unreported Office of Inspector General investigation found that in February 2016, the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services stopped using the results from an FBI crime database called the National Instant Criminal Background Check System that ensures applicants who want to carry a gun do not have a disqualifying history in other states. The employee in charge of the background checks could not log into the system, the investigator learned. The problem went unresolved until discovered by another worker in March of 2017, meaning that for more than a year, applications got approved without the required background check. Now, look, I'm very pro-Second Amendment. We had a whole episode on guns. Uh, this is mind-bogglingly stupid to me that you can't do your job because you can't log in and you don't get it fixed for more than a year when someone else notices the problem. This is Florida-level incompetence. Uh, also, out of Bay County, we do have some good news. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. Uh, basically, a deputy took a pair of cans of Bush's baked beans and threw them at a guy who happened to have a hammer that he was swinging around at people and disarmed him. From the story, it says, quote, Beans have many benefits. They are a source of protein, complex carbs, and fiber. They can also be a handy weapon to bring down a perp, as demonstrated by a resourceful deputy in a Panama City grocery store on Thursday. The Bay County Sheriff's Office received a call to respond to the Rainbow Food Store when employees reported a man was armed with a gun and threatening employees at the store. Now, it turned out he actually just had a hammer, uh, but... Quote, in surveillance video released by the sheriff's office, Major Jimmy Stanford brings down the subject with two cans of beans, the extra brown sugar variety. Subquote, Major Stanford ran down a nearby aisle to approach from behind the subject, but the subject saw him. Major Stanford then demonstrated amazingly accurate pitching skills and distracted the subject with the use of two cans of Bush's baked beans. Now, distracted there, they put in quotes, uh, the guy just decks him, just completely decks him with the beans, which, I mean, is fine. I don't have a problem with that. At least the guy's not dead. He's not seriously injured. He did have a weapon, you know, so good for him. You could say he got beaned with beans. Uh, so that's out of Florida. In Georgia, this, God, this is, so this is a third rule of Fisk moment. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. One of the things we talk about often is how easily bad cops can get hired in new jurisdictions. And, you know, this happens a lot, but at least sometimes there's like a, a waiting period, you know, just to try and keep up appearances. But you'll remember just last week we talked about Taylor Salters, who's the guy who crashed his car uh, and then ran over a suspect, like ran him over with the patrol car. He was fired because he ran over the guy with his patrol car. Well, you will be shocked, shocked to know that he has a new job. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, The mother of a man who was hit by a police car said Monday morning that the athens Clark County officer never should have driven into him, although her son said he should not have run. Subquote, I am relieved that he was fired. Tammy Brown Patman, mother of Timmy Patman, told Channel 2 Action News. Justice was served. That was before Officer Taylor Salters was hired Monday afternoon by the neighboring Oglethorpe County Sheriff's Office. Salters' Marietta-based attorney, Philip Holloway, confirmed that his client, subquote, received multiple offers of employment and is now again back at work in law enforcement. This is a testament to the fact that seasoned veteran law enforcement officials recognize the lawfulness of my client's actions and the injustice of his termination. Holloway's statement to Channel 2 Action News said, 
bullshit. It's a sign that fucking law enforcement agencies will hire any goddamn body, even when they're dirty cops who use excessive force. But that's neither here nor there. So that's out of Georgia. In Illinois, we have another instance of the first rule of Fisk, where police ended up handcuffing, arresting an unarmed 10-year-old black boy, terrifying him to the point that he wet his pants, uh, all in a case of mistaken identity. From the story, it says, quote, Chicago police officers followed all of the rules and protocols when they handcuffed a 10-year-old boy, according to police superintendent Eddie Johnson. WMAQ-TV reported this week that cell phone video of the Friday night incident showed officers handcuffing a frightened Michael Thomas Jr. after receiving calls about a boy between the ages of 10 and 12 dressed in blue and carrying a gun in the area. The frightening incident was witnessed by the boy's outraged mother. So, quote, you can see that he doesn't have any weapons on him, a woman identified as the grandmother says on the cell phone video. I raised up my grandbaby's shirt. He don't have anything on him. Take those handcuffs off of him. The boy's uncle also confronted officers at the scene and is heard on the cell phone video demanding to know why his nephew was in handcuffs. The boy's mother demanded an explanation from police after the traumatic 15-minute incident. They need to apologize. He's going to be scarred for the rest of his life now, the mother told NBC5. Anything can happen. We might need him to call the police, and he's going to be too afraid to even call. Thomas, who was in the fourth grade, was traumatized. Subquote, they put me in handcuffs. I was scared. I was crying. They told me I escaped from juvenile, and I had a gun. I said I didn't escape from juvenile, and I don't have a gun. They handcuffed the wrong person. And we'll give you a link to the story that's got the video in it as well. You know, the part that kills me about all this, let, let's pause for a minute and remind ourselves that the whole they have a gun thing is bogus most of the time anyway. I just told you that story about Florida where the guy had a gun. Well, it was actually a hammer. We talked in the prior episodes, policing white space, where people are supposed to have a gun and they have nothing at all. So this notion that someone who is told by dispatch that they have a gun actually has a gun is questionable to begin with. But you'll notice this whole he has a gun thing is a one-way ratchet. It only works in the police's benefit. You know, when they kill somebody who is unarmed, they say, oh, well, I thought he had a gun. But then they handcuff somebody who's unarmed and say, well, he could potentially have a gun. You ever notice they don't err in the other direction? A guy actually has a gun, and the officer says, oh, well, I didn't know he had a gun, so I decided not to handcuff him. You know, it's just something is not right there. And to do that to a 10-year-old boy, and then to have the police superintendent say, oh, this is all great, we're all following the protocols, the rules and regulations, well, then it's time to change the fucking rules and regulations. So that's out of Illinois and Iowa. Uh, we have another ICE story from Des Moines. This is more of the legacy of the Obama-Trump immigration policy. Yes, I said Obama because he was doing this stuff first. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Manuel Antonio Pacheco should have graduated from high school in Des Moines last month. The oldest of four siblings should have walked across the stage in a cap and gown to become a proud symbol to his sister and brothers of the rewards of hard work and education. Instead, Manuel died a brutal death alone in a foreign land, a symbol of gang supremacy in a country plagued by violent drug cartels. It happened just three weeks after U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement returned him to Mexico, a country he had left at age three when his parents brought him here without a visa. And what you'll find as you go through that story, which we'll give you the link to, is that all he had on his criminal record uh, were speeding tickets. So for that, he was deported and killed. Go us, USA. Woo. Uh, out of Kentucky and Georgetown, this is, a, this is such a weird fucking story. So a current state trooper, a retired lieutenant state trooper, and the current coroner of a given county have all been indicted as part of a theft ring where they stole ammunition, transported moonshine, and stole eyeballs. Yes, eyeballs, like cadaver eyes, the things you see with after you're dead. Well, you wouldn't see with them after you're dead, but I guess you can use them to transplant. I don't know. I don't know how it fucking works. Yes, I date an optometrist, but she doesn't do eye transplants. How the fuck should I know? I assume you just put them on ice. I mean, they do that with the bodies. I don't know. That's the, I don't mess with dead people because it fucking creeps me out. Okay, so let's just let, let's get to the story. All right. Um, so it, 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 it's a weird story. So here's an excerpt from WAVE3, uh, and I'm giving you them because there are several spots in the story where it says our, it's the news people that they're talking about. 
Uh, it says, quote, Kentucky. Oh, and let me pause before we even get into it. The state trooper who's indicted this time has already been in trouble before because of a media investigation by this exact same media outlet. It says, quote, Kentucky State Police Trooper Robert Mitch Harris is no stranger to being on the news. He was caught by our undercover camera in 2015 while charging overtime for a shift he didn't actually work. Harris was suspended after that investigation, taken off the road, and reassigned to KSP's supply branch. Now KSP believes they may have made a mistake. Subquote, extremely discouraging, disheartening. KSP trooper Josh Lawson said of the indictments, Harris is accused of stealing rifles, shotguns, and two trucks worth of ammo right from the supply branch to which he was reassigned. Uh, the story goes on. He would turn them over to a, the retired lieutenant colonel and uh, the coroner. It says, quote, John Goble of Georgetown, Kentucky, is the current county coroner. He has been indicted on two counts of receiving stolen property, two counts of official misconduct, one count of abuse of public trust, and one count of possession of a controlled substance. Mike Crawford, 54, is a retired lieutenant colonel with KSP and at one time was the commanding officer of the Frankfurt Post. Or Frankfurt, sorry. I'd, apologies to people in Kentucky. I know I've been mispronouncing your various cities for some time. Uh, Crawford is charged with two counts of receiving stolen property. And then Harris, the current state trooper, 45, is charged with two counts each of theft by unlawful taking and forgery. The forgery charges against Harris accuse him of covering up the transfer of rifles and shotguns belonging to KSP to Goble and Crawford by forging names on official documents required to make the transfer. Crawford is charged with knowingly receiving the stolen ammo, and the indictment said Goebbels' charges for abuse of public trust are for using public funds to make payments of $500 a month to Nathan Morris for services as deputy coroner, while knowing that Morris never performed any of the required duties. And one of the official misconduct charges against Goebbels said he used a vehicle owned by the county government to transport moonshine. And the second charge accuses Goebel of using a county vehicle to transport donor eyes from the Kentucky Eye Bank to West Virginia for personal profit. Let me pause. It, it is so fucking creepy to me that there's a thing called an eye bank. I get it. Eye transplants are important, you know, cool, but it's just, I, I envision like, you know, the walking dead where the governor has his uh, various jars of zombie heads. Like that's kind of what I envision the eye bank being just jars of eyeballs on ice. And it just creeps me the fuck out. Uh, but that's in Kentucky. There's some wild corruption going on in Kentucky. Uh, out of Maryland, in Baltimore, we have the fourth rule of Fisk. The Wire was a documentary. Uh, a disabled man turned himself in on a traffic charge, and he ended up dead. From the story, it says, quote, 31-year-old disabled man who was being held at the Baltimore Central Booking and Intake Facility died Wednesday night. De Niro Bellamy had turned himself in on a traffic violation. A correction spokesman said that he was in a holding cell with other inmates when guards found him collapsed around 9 p.m. He said correctional officers attempted to perform CPR and Bellamy was taken to the emergency room of Johns Hopkins Hospital where he was pronounced dead. It is at least the second death there in just three years. Bernice Mitchell, a 53-year-old woman, died at Central Booking in December of 2016. Her family members complained that they were not told of her death until days after it happened and that they were left in the dark about crucial details leading up to it. Like Mitchell's family members, De Niro Bellamy's brother said he has been given little information about his brother's death and that officials provided inconsistent stories about what happened. After hearing about his brother's death Wednesday night, Zeke Bellamy said he rushed to Johns Hopkins Hospital where he found staff were, subquote, very secretive about what had happened to his brother. He said he was not permitted to see the body before it was taken to the medical examiner's office. That's disappointing. Uh, out of Minnesota in Minneapolis, this is so we've talked before about racial profiling. This is a fantastic example of racial profiling. Uh, they're not going to do weed stings anymore because, well, I'm just going to give you the numbers. I'll give you the numbers in the story. It says, quote, Minneapolis police abruptly ended the practice of targeting small-scale marijuana sellers downtown after revelations that nearly everyone arrested was black. 
In a series of rushed announcements Thursday, authorities said that police would no longer conduct sting operations targeting low-level marijuana sales and charges against 47 people arrested in the first five months of 2018 would be dismissed. The extraordinary turnaround came after Hennepin County's chief public defender contacted Mayor Jacob Fry to complain about what looked like blatant racial profiling. Fry, this could be Frey, I'm going with Fry. Fry then directed Chief Medaria Arredondo to stop the stings. So, quote, I believe strongly that marijuana should be a lowest level enforcement priority and that it should be fully legalized at the state level, Fry said in a statement Thursday. Now, here's where we get to the data. Using undercover officers posing as buyers, they arrested 47 people for selling marijuana on Hennepin between 5th and 6th Streets. The Hennepin County Public Defender's Office determined that 46 of those arrested were black. All were charged as felonies, some were put in diversion programs, some were convicted, and at least one man went to prison. Think about the math on that. Holy shit. So you're spending all of this time and effort. Let me, let me pause. Mini rant. I hate the fact that so many drug arrests are the result of so-called stings, that we are wasting police time, resources, taxpayer money to deliberately set up people as a way of trying to get weed dealers. You know, it's one thing if you're trying to get, you know, uh, fucking, what's the guy's name? Uh, The one that dealt the cocaine down in uh, Colombia. Pablo Escobar. Yeah, him. You know, it's one thing if you're trying to get your local Pablo Escobar because he's dealing coke or meth or something that's like, you got people dying, you know, opioids. If you got a little opioid peddler, then okay, I can I can maybe see why that would matter. But you're spending this on weed interdiction, and 97.8% of the people you arrest are black. 46 out of 47. That's 97.8%. Holy shit. Like, that is flagrant racial profiling. There's no way around that. Like, the numbers, wow. That's insane to me. So they're not going to do any more weed stings in Minneapolis. So those are our stories out of Minnesota. In New York, out of New York City, the people who are serving at Fort Hamilton apparently work with some assholes. They ordered a pizza and then turned the pizza delivery man over to ICE. From the story, it says, quote, an Ecuadorian father of two was turned over to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement after he made a pizza delivery to a U.S. Army base in New York City, sparking outrage and anguish from his family and local officials this week. Pablo Villavicencio, I probably butchered that, or Villavicencio, uh, was detained by military police officers and turned over to ICE last Friday and remains in custody pending deportation, according to a statement from the Immigration Enforcement Agency. His wife, Sandra, said Wednesday that Via Vicencio had delivered pizza from Queens to the base at Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn in the past, presenting his New York City identification card and has never had an issue before. Uh, in a separate story, they found out that his lawyers have won a temporary stay of removal, so we'll see what happens if he's whether or not he's allowed to remain in the country. But again, when you listen to our Papaya POTUS, the Moscow Muppet Donald Trump, that he is deporting the bad folks, he's lying to you. They're deporting normal people like this guy who have a job, is providing for a family, doesn't have a criminal record, but they're going to deport him anyway. Uh, Out of Ohio, speaking of of, a perfect example of this, another ICE story out of Sandusky, Ohio, Immigration and Customs Enforcement showed up with donuts, offering donuts to people at a landscaping company, and then started to arrest them. From the story, it says, quote, a swarm of immigration agents arrested more than 100 workers at an Ohio gardening and landscaping company Tuesday morning. One of the largest of several recent workplace raids carried out as part of the Trump administration's crackdown on immigration enforcement. About 200 federal officers blitzed two locations of Corso's Flower and Garden Center, one in Sandusky and another in nearby Castalia. Agents surrounded the perimeter of the Castalia location, blocking off nearby streets as helicopters flew overhead. They arrested 114 workers suspected of being in the country illegally and loaded many onto buses bound for ICE detention facilities. Dozens of the workers' children were left stranded at daycare centers and with babysitters. Undercover officers showed up in an employee break room, initially offering to give out Dunkin' Donuts. Then they started rounding up workers. This is fucking amoral. It's not immoral. It's amoral. 
utterly fucking ridiculous. It's out of Ohio. In Oregon, in Marion County, another example of the first rule of Fisk, as sheriff's deputies beat the shit out of a homeless guy caught on camera. From the story, it says, quote, A sheriff's deputy, seen repeatedly punching a local transient during an arrest Monday morning, has been temporarily reassigned during an investigation into the incident. Deputy Jake Thompson has been moved to a non-patrol assignment until a review of the rest is complete. The Marion County Sheriff's Office identified the other involved deputies as Derek Ramsayer, Dave Zan, Ethan Griffith, and Mark Farron. The arrest was caught on video by KGW. Sidebar, that is the news outlet. So the news actually got this recorded. Uh, outside of a Marion County Search and Rescue Command Center for a missing father and son. The sheriff's office addressed the incident in a written statement Tuesday evening, saying it, subquote, continues to gather all relevant facts and information about this arrest and will be reviewing the use of force applied in accordance with the office policy. Uh, basically, the homeless guy kept coming up to this command center for the search and rescue mission, interrupting people. They arrested him for the disturbance, but I guess he resisted. So to ensure he complied, they beat the fuck out of him on camera. Uh, it's in Oregon out of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. We have good news again. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. District Attorney Larry Krasner is continuing to walk the walk. He is trying to compile a comprehensive list of dirty cops to make sure they don't get called for trials. From the story, it says, quote, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office has asked the city's police department for nearly a decade's accounting of serious violations by its officers so it can compile a comprehensive roster of those who have lied while on duty, used excessive force, racially profiled, or violated civil rights. The exercise, unprecedented in scope in recent city history, is designed to help prosecutors flag officers with credibility issues early in a case and possibly prevent their testimony, District Attorney Larry Krasner said in an interview last week. Krasner declined to estimate how many officers may ultimately end up on the roster, but said the number would almost certainly exceed the 66 on a similar list developed by his predecessor. The new protocol also will call for prosecutors to disclose an officer's past infractions to defense attorneys. Krasner and the head of his Conviction Integrity Unit, Patricia Cummings, said that the roster and new protocols are important to ensure prosecutors pursue cases built by honest and reliable police and that potentially damaging information against officers is turned over to defendants as required by law. Kudos to him. Uh, in Utah, out of Farmington, this is... <laughs> I don't even know how I would describe this. Like, this is just, you know, fuck shit all around. Basically, a sheriff's deputy engaged in misconduct. The city, or county rather, agreed to cover it up. And they apparently didn't do a good enough job. So now the dirty cop is filing a suit to get money from the county for violating the agreement. This is just so fucking ridiculous. Uh, extended quotes. Coming it says, quote, a former Davis County Sheriff's deputy has filed a one million dollar civil lawsuit alleging the county broke an agreement to keep secret some of the disciplinary proceedings against him over his misconduct in a SWAT incident. The second district court suit filed by Clint Douglas Shaw accuses the county of violating the terms of a 2013 confidential settlement. The suit said Shaw later applied for police jobs in Salt Lake and Summit counties, but he was not hired because the disciplinary documents were placed in his personnel file, contrary to terms of the secrecy agreement. Shaw was on a SWAT team February 26th of 2012 in Centerville that confronted an armed suicidal man barricaded in an apartment. After the man emerged from the apartment and several officers took him into custody, Shaw left his post nearby, approached the suspect, and made derogatory statements, according to court records. Documents said Sheriff Todd Richardson disciplined Shaw because the deputy was, subquote, spinning things up with verbal altercations, which resulted in the creation of havoc rather than decompressing the situation. In a disciplinary notice to Shaw, under Sheriff Brent Peters said Shaw's actions agitated the suspect, requiring the arresting officers to use unnecessary force to subdue him. Shaw also was accused of lying during the subsequent internal investigation, and Richardson served notice that Shaw would be fired. However, Shaw obtained an attorney and appealed the firing. A county merit commission overturned the firing. As Shaw returned to duty, Richardson suspended him for one day without pay, ordered six months probation, and removed him from the SWAT team. So, look, fuck the county for breaking their word. Fuck this guy for being an asshole. Fuck them both for agreeing to the secrecy bullshit in the first place. It's some crazy shit going on in Utah, y'all. 
uh, out of West Virginia in Charleston, we've got some misbehavior in the judiciary uh, because one of the Supreme Court justices has been suspended. From the story, it says, quote, legislative leaders are calling for the resignation of West Virginia Supreme Court Justice Alan Lowry after he was suspended without pay. Lowry's suspension and calls for his resignation came Friday as a result of an order stating the court believes he has engaged in violations of the state's code of judicial conduct. Friday's activity follows a 32-page statement of charges issued Wednesday by the Judicial Investigations Commission. Statement of charges says Lowry violated the state judicial code of conduct when he, subquote, made false statements with the deliberate attempt to deceive, engaged in sophism, and gave disinformation with the intent to harm another person. The charges stem in part from high-dollar spending of the court, Lowry's one-time possession of court property at his private home, and improper personal use of a state vehicle. That's Crazy. Have fun in West Virginia. Uh, out of Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, we have, again, the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they're being recorded. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the arrest of Sterling Brown, who was the basketball player for the Milwaukee Bucks, and how he was courteous and trying to calm down the situation. As you see police ratcheting things up, they eventually tase him, beat the shit out of him a little bit. Well, a, an initial bit of that video got released, and it was a huge firestorm. Well, more stuff has come out, and it's even worse than you saw in the first batch. From the story, it says, quote, One of the Milwaukee police officers involved in the arrest and tasing of Buck's rookie Sterling Brown stepped on the NBA guard's ankle as he lay on the ground. Another officer requested overtime, singing, Money, 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 money. And when an officer asked why more investigators were on the way, a sergeant answered, we're trying to protect ourselves because he plays for the Bucks. If he makes a complaint, it's going to be a media firestorm. Those scenes played out on additional body camera video of Brown's arrest obtained Monday by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It has not yet been released by the police department. It's fucking ridiculous. All these guys need to be fired. They absolutely need to be fired. Although, as we saw down in Georgia, they'll all get hired within a week. Uh, so, folks, that is the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery this week. Again, it was a rather light batch. Let's go ahead and jump into our Law 140 on bail and why Paul Manafort could be going to jail. All right, so as we mentioned in the political portion of this episode, Paul Manafort was dimed out by some of his colleagues and accused of witness tampering. So from this story, it says, quote, After months of oblique references to an unnamed Russian associate of Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman, the special counsel identified the associate on Friday and charged both men with obstruction of justice. That associate, Konstantin Kilimnik, is a Russian army-trained linguist prosecutors have accused of having ties to Russian intelligence. On Friday, the special counsel's team added to the list of charges Mr. Manafort faces, accusing him and Mr. Kalimnik of obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice for trying to coach witnesses from whom the special counsel has sought information about Ukraine lobbying work. Uh, basically, Manafort was sending text messages through an encrypted app to this guy who was in turn passing them on to other people who realized that he was trying to influence their testimony and narked to the FBI. So the question came up on Twitter, basically what happens now? I mean, how does the bail process work in the federal context when you've got a guy who's already been out on pretrial release and then decides to tamper with witnesses? So this is actually going to be a short Law 140 because the answers are fairly simple. Remember, the second rule of FISC, whenever you're dealing with issues of constitutional laws, statutes, or whatever else, you have to start at the source text. And the federal rules of criminal procedure govern how criminal stuff works generally. So it's kind of like in the civil context, you have the federal rules of civil procedure, you have the federal rules of evidence. These are all like core things that lay out the process that a lot of court stuff goes through. And in Rule 46, you have release from custody. And in subpart A of that rule, you have what happens when it's before trial. And it says the provisions of 18 U.S.C. sections 3142 and 3144 govern pretrial release. That's all it says. Now, you find that a lot in federal stuff where they cross-reference other sections of other statutes. And it's 
normally very mind-numbing and tedious trying to go through them all. But, you know, the benefit of hyperlinks online is that you just click a link and ta-da, you're done. But those sections refer to the Bail Reform Act of 1984. That's the title of it. But it lays out how federal bail works when it comes to whether or not you're going to be released before trial. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about it because that's not really the part that matters. Manafort has already gotten bail. But the gist of it is there's an assessment that's done by the probation office staff to determine whether or not you're going to be a flight risk and whether or not you're going to be a threat to the community. We've talked about this before. It's basically the same types of principles at play in a state bail proceeding. And then that report is given to the judge, and the judge has to make a determination whether or not you should be released. And there's a strong bias in favor of release. That's the design. You're supposed to be out pending trial unless you're going to be at risk for not coming back or for hurting someone else. And what the judges can do is that they can put different conditions on your release. So they can require that you wear an ankle monitor. They can require you to post some form of bond. Um, they can require you not communicate with somebody, surrender your passport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They can tack on pretty much whatever conditions they want with very few exceptions. So that's what happened in Manafort's case. One of those conditions is always don't commit any other crimes. You know, I've defended folks in federal court before. That is a standard condition. You're here because you got in trouble. Don't get into more trouble if I'm going to let you out before trial. So as part of the Bail Reform Act, there is a particular statute that addresses what happens when you violate a condition of your pretrial release. And that is 18 U.S.C. 3148, 18 United States Code, Section 3148. And it says, quote, Sanctions for violation of a release condition. That's the statute title. And it says, under subpart A, available sanctions, quote, a person who has been released under section 3142 of this title and who has violated a condition of his release is subject to a revocation of release, an order of detention, and a prosecution for contempt of court. Now, the process for how that goes down is in subpart B for revocation of release. It says, quote, the attorney for the government may initiate a proceeding for revocation of an order of release by filing a motion with the district court. A judicial officer may issue a warrant for the arrest of a person charged with violating a condition of release, and the person shall be brought before a judicial officer in the district in which such person's arrest was ordered for a proceeding in accordance with this section. To the extent practicable, a person charged with violating the condition of release that such person not commit a federal, state, or local crime during the period of release shall be brought before the judicial officer who ordered the release and whose order is alleged to have been violated. That judicial officer shall enter an order of revocation and detention if, after a hearing, the judicial officer, subpart 1, finds that there is probable cause to believe that the person has committed a federal, state, or local crime while on release, or clear and convincing evidence that the person has violated any other condition of release, and subpart 2 finds that based on the factors set forth in section 3142G, there is no condition or combination of conditions of release that will assure that the person will not flee or pose a danger to the safety of any other person or the community, or the person is unlikely to abide by any condition or combination of conditions of release. So there's two sets of findings. You have to find probable cause that they violated a crime, that they committed a crime, basically, or clear and convincing evidence they violated some other non-don't-commit-more-crimes condition, and that they're not going to abide by any other conditions of release. Theoretically, you can modify pretrial release to impose additional conditions if the judge thinks that will work well enough. So here's where it gets tricky. It continues. It says, quote, if there is probable cause to believe that while on release, the person committed a federal, state, or local felony, this is different from a misdemeanor or a traffic offense. They've got specifically a felony there. <laughs> quote, a rebuttable presumption arises that no condition or combination of conditions will assure that the person will not pose a danger to the safety of any other person or the community. If the judicial officer finds that there are conditions of release that will assure that the person will not flee or pose a danger to the safety of any other person or the community, and that the person will abide by such conditions, the judicial officer shall treat the person in accordance with the provisions of Section 3142 of this title and may amend the conditions of release accordingly. So basically, if you can find a way to release them and they'll comply with the terms, 
there's still an encouragement there to do that. But if the term they violated was don't commit any other crimes, they did, based on probable cause, commit a crime, and that particular crime is a felony, it's presumed that they need to be put in jail, that they cannot be released. And it's up to the defendant to then, that's why it's called a rebuttable presumption. The presumption is there, but the defendant can rebut it. It's up to the defendant to prove that, yes, in fact, they will abide by the conditions. And if the judge isn't persuaded, the person goes to jail until trial. So as far as how these standards work, you'll notice this is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. This is a much lower standard, probable cause that a crime has been committed or clear and convincing evidence that some other term has been violated. So if you go way back to episode five, we talked about probation violations, where after you've been uh, convicted of a crime and released, you're out on probation, the standard of whether or not you violated your probation because a crime was allegedly committed, it's the same basic concept. In neither case do you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You just have to have, in the case of the federal stuff, probable cause, uh, for state stuff, it varies, but it's like, you know, reasonable satisfaction of the judge and that sort of thing. And in addition, just like with the probation violation hearings, uh, the rules of evidence don't apply. It's a very informal hearing because we're talking about pretrial detention, not a separate criminal proceeding. So I'm going to give you a link in the show notes to the United States Attorney's Manual on pretrial proceedings. And I'm going to give you that link because in addition to the text of what goes on, they include lots of citations to cases. So that way I don't have to go through all these cases and explain what they all mean. Uh, but one of the things they have as part of their U.S. Attorney's Manual, it says, quote, detention hearings are an informal proceeding and the evidence presented is not governed by the federal rules of evidence. The government may proceed in a detention hearing by way of proffer. The rationale for permitting a detention hearing to proceed by way of proffer is that such hearings are, subquote, neither a discovery device for the defense nor a trial on the merits. The process that is due is only that which is required by and proportionate to the purpose of the proceeding. That purpose includes neither a reprise of all the evidence presented before the grand jury nor the right to confront non-testifying government witnesses. A right to require the government to produce its witnesses against the defendant would complicate the hearing to a degree out of proportion to the liberty interest at stake, viz. the interest in remaining free until trial for what is by statute a period of limited duration. For those of you who aren't up on your Latin, viz is an abbreviation for videlicet. I don't know why the Z is there because there's no Z in the actual thing, uh, but in English it just means namely. So, namely the interest in remaining free until trial. So as part of this whole process, Manafort is going to be going into a hearing with a lowered standard of proof, with the admissibility of things like hearsay that normally would not be able to come in at trial. And all the judge has to determine is that probable cause exists that he committed a crime while he was on pretrial release. But there's one extra wrinkle here because as part of this process, Mueller already had the grand jury issue what is called a superseding indictment, an indictment that replaces the earlier one that includes this stuff about witness tampering. And what is the standard for a grand jury to indict? You've hopefully listened to our earlier episode. It is, surprise, probable cause. So the fact that a grand jury has already found probable cause that Manafort has attempted to tamper with witnesses, that may very well be good enough for the judge. That question has pretty much already been handled. So it's going to be interesting to see at this hearing whether or not Manafort's team can now rebut that presumption, overcome the presumption that there are no set of conditions he can abide by that would allow him to be out on pretrial release without breaking the law, in essence. That's going to be their next task. So they filed a brief trying to push back on that, but they'll see if the judge is satisfied. And, I, you know, I don't know who this judge is. Don't have any insight on how they would rule. Attempted witness tampering is a big deal. So if I were a betting man, I would bet that Manafort's probably going to go to jail. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you're dealing with a guy who ran Trump's campaign for a period of time. So power and money get you some perks in uh, the criminal justice system. So we'll see. 
But if I, like I said, if I were betting, I would bet Manafort's going to go to jail. And if he does go to jail, I'm going to bet one of two things happen. Either one, he sings like a fucking canary because he doesn't seem like the type to do well in jail for a long period of time. Or our Cheeto in chief, the beloved papaya potus Donald Trump, issues him a pardon so that all of this stuff goes away. So we'll see. All right, so that covers our brief Law 140 on the Bail Reform Act and why Paul Manafort may be going to jail. I hope you enjoyed it. If you liked what you have heard in this podcast, please do us a favor. Leave us a rating on the uh, Apple Podcasts app or Stitcher or wherever else you leave your podcasts. Uh, or get your podcast, rather, forgive me. Uh, and then also, please leave us a written review, letting us and potential listeners know what you think. So on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you all so much for listening. We will talk to you next Monday. Have a blessed week.